Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to the Extinctions Podcast, the first and quite possibly last podcast dedicated specifically to paleoecology, rewilding science, and the recent past. So, hi. Today we are interviewing Reese Lemoyne. Reese is a PhD student at Aarhus University who many listeners involved in rewilding and or paleoecological circles may well have heard of already. He runs the blogs Rewilding Canada, Ecological Surrogacy and Tax and Substitution and more, as well as being on the team of the organization Young Rewilders, all things I'm sure we'll get to in time. So, Reese, how are you doing? I'm good. Excellent. And Sam, my co-host? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited for this, uh, this interview. Yeah. Um, I think we should just dig straight in. And I think yeah, beginning good. at the beginning makes sense. So, Reese, what is your background? Uh, well, I'm from uh, the Niagara region, southern Ontario in Canada, originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, degree at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, uh, in biology. Uh, after which I moved to Ireland uh, to do my master's degree at Trinity College in biodiversity and wildlife conservation. Uh, after, after which I was asked to come to Aarhus to do a PhD uh, with Jens Christian Spenning. Great. I actually. What exactly you is your uh, PhD? Yes, sorry, I should explain that a bit. Uh, I uh, I am at least for this first chapter studying the relationship between uh, different variables on the megafauna extinctions at the end of the Quaternary period, uh, specifically hominin paleobio paleobio sorry, paleobiogeography and uh, climatic and climatic factors. Not an easy word to say, is it? No, 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 it isn't. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. So I think yeah, we just got into it a bit, but the project you're involved in, so you're doing your PhD project, obviously. Um, yes. But you're also involved in a reasonable amount of other things alongside it. Yes, that's true. Um, uh, let's see, some, some examples. Uh, other things at the university would just be several papers we're working on that I probably shouldn't talk about until they're published. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm working on the phylocene project, sort of peripherally, though not that much since yeah, early fall. Uh, so I, 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 in fact, Tristan, I don't think my involvement's been that much more than yours. I, <laughs> I, I contributed some some uh, update ideas uh, regarding large mammals i think you might and know just, a bit more about the uh, behind the scenes details there than i do i've mostly been involved with bats and nothing else but yes and just for uh those people who are unfamiliar with the phylocene project can you quickly outline what uh what it is yeah i can do that it's uh the, the idea is that it's to map the current and uh what would be called expected ranges i.e what the ranges of certain mammals would be uh, if human impact was not a factor. So, you know, in the, but in the current day. So it's not the same as to say what the ranges of these species would have been in history or, um, or, or prehistory, but what they would be today if human influence were not a factor. And this is specifically for mammals. So we're modeling a hypothetical present day as compared to a reconstructed past range. Yes. Is that okay. Yeah. How do you go about determining what the expected range would be? 
if oh, you that's know. actually not so yeah that i would say that's not exactly the part of it that i do so um we, we have we have uh we have a postdoc uh rasmus working on that uh but what my, my involvement in it has mostly been literature review on extinct mammals to determine what should be included in the first place mm-hmm so is that things like taxonomic designation or? Yes, a lot of that. Uh, uh, that that's sort of where I come in is, is uh, determining what the correct taxonomic terms and, delineate, and delineations are for extinct mammals. Probably. Listeners uh, who are also familiar with our species profiles and other articles have probably already seen phylocene quite a lot, actually, um, if they've been reading. We've used it to reconstruct a bunch of range maps for several of the species we featured, including, what was it, uh, uh, Haploidoceras, uh, Morinellophus, and others. We've also used it, and I know at least the Aurochs article. And, and the cave lion, too. Yeah, and I, you'll know more about this than me, Sam, because you were the one who formatted it, but I believe a lot of the species list we have, uh, the big megafauna list, is actually based on data from phylocene to a large degree. Yeah, so um, phylocene was a very useful tool for at least finding the list of megafauna above 40 kilograms, because they actually uh sort their species out by expected expected body weight as well yeah nice giant excel spreadsheet yes i I believe the one you would have access to is version 1.2 it's 1.3 that's being worked on right now Mm -hmm. and uh that's the only one i've had any involvement in so before Mm we move on from that just quickly if listeners might be interested in checking out the database is it open access how does one access it uh 1.2 is fully available on data dryad so that can just be Googled if people want to see it. Exactly, yeah. So of your other projects, and again, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but you are involved in Young Rewilders. And in fact, at the time we're recording this, you launched just a couple of days ago. I yes, believe. Tuesday. With, 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 yeah, I forget the exact date, but the, two, just, the Tuesday that just happened was our official launch. Um, the 6th. Yes, correct. Uh yeah, so that, that that I think that was very successful. We've had uh, numerous requests for membership. We're currently, I think this is public knowledge because we mentioned it in the thing that's now on YouTube, but we're currently uh, asking for applications for two new core members, um, specifically to relate with our social media and ambassador programs. Um, yeah, so... It, uh, I, I can certainly field any more questions you would have about that. So perhaps mm-hmm. we should just step back and ask, what is Young Rewilders? Yeah, that's okay. That's good. Um, yeah, I, I, it's. Uh, it, I'm just trying, wondering what the best way to word this is. It's a subsidiary organization, sort of, but also partner organization of Rewilding Europe that is meant to encourage involvement and. Uh, create connections between uh, younger people in the field working in rewilding. I've noticed that the website you have mirrors the Rewilding Europe website very closely. It's a neat touch. Yes, it, same designer. Yeah. Um, okay, that sounds good. I think a lot so of people it, it, here will have heard of Rewilding Europe to some degree. So, uh, and so it's largely networking then. But do you is the plan to organize projects for young volunteers or what's the that's what's the idea certainly. Here? That's certainly something we're considering, but at the 
at the moment it's it's mostly about networking and we're, we're trying to get and education is also a big thing we're trying to get into is providing resources and connections to people who are trying to get into the field um and we're also sort of acting as a as a a place where members can go to perhaps get early uh to be informed early about job interview job opportunities and in in the field internships that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh we we've already done one where we uh i th- i think by the time this is this is released it, it it'll be past the 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 point of application but just as an example we offered an internship so we advertised an inter- an, an internship through our through our group uh before that same internship was offered to other people okay so if people might particularly young people might be interested in getting into the rewilding movement perhaps they've seen rewilding europe perhaps they've found it in other ways young rewilders would be an ideal or at least a good place to start if you exactly. want to have sort of a stepping stone yes we're still very early days but we're, we really are trying to develop something useful for for people getting into the field so what is your exact relationship with young rewilders how long have you been involved with them i know that it's been going on behind the scenes for quite a while Yes, uh since mm, uh, what would be accurate to say. Uh do, we had our first meeting uh since like late 2019 would be probably accurate. Um it but it started when the uh the call was given by Rewilding Europe for a young for a youth member of the supervisory council a job which eventually went to Alexandrina Mitzva. Uh, who, who who is who is who fills that position? Who fills that position now? Uh, but there was so much interest in said position that they decided there was it would be of interest to form a group out of some of the other applicants uh, to serve as a, a as a sort of. At the time, it was unclear exactly what we were going to be doing with it, but the, the young rewilding rewilders community was sort of what was born out of that and i was one of the original applicants and one of the people who showed uh an interest in being a core member afterwards mm-hmm. so perhaps it would be relevant to ask now because i'm sure at least a few listeners won't be completely clear on that what is rewilding or at least what is rewilding as young rewilders uses the term that's a good question it's not a very well-defined term no it's not no, it can mean it's, uh, you know, when it when it was first coined in the 90s, it meant something like wilderness preservation or wilderness creation, uh, you know, Yellowstone to Yukon, that sort of, of thing. Uh, it was a very North American sort of context at the time. Um, later, it came to mean sort of, the, as I understand it, tropic rewilding, which in, involves the implementation of keystone species in order to reduce human management. Um, then it sort of transitioned into being almost a spiritual movement. And I, I think where we sit is almost somewhere between those last two, where it, the point is nature creation in a different way than, is, than traditional conservation or restoration. Uh, that focuses on natural processes, but as with re- rewilding Europe, also a very heavy focus on community involvement, 
and um, outreach and, you know, ecotourism, all of these sorts of things that integrate a more sustainable view of nature with the community and the economy. That's a good answer. I think we, I mean, we've definitely seen over the last few years, many attempts to define and sort of box this term in. So yeah. I know, I don't remember who the authors were, but there was a paper that came out some years ago that proposed an official definition of rewilding. And they had the spectrum of rewilding that talked about, I think it was a spectrum of wildness and rewilding was any action that moved an ecosystem further towards the wild end of the spectrum away from the management end. So it wasn't necessarily a black and white thing. It was more of a, again, of a movement in a certain direction, a movement towards a self-willed ecosystem. Yes, the, the definition I typically use, which I think is the bare bones of it, is just anything that maximizes natural process to, uh, to the exclusion of human management. It doesn't mean exclusively natural process. It means as much as, as is possible in the area in question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how would you say that projects like, say, NEP fit into this? It's slightly out there, but... Yes, it's different, but my my view of it is that it does qualify as rewilding because it's taking a specific kind of land use, i.e. farming, and involving as much natural process as possible. And is, and often uh, removing uh, elements of human management in the process. I guess that would fit into the whole idea of rewilding as not being a black and white thing, but being a movement towards a more self-willed ecosystem. So no, I've always it's... liked more gradiented definitions, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think that it that that is what it boils down to is that anything that you know pushes it towards that direction is rewilding, and it's okay for there to be different degrees of it that are possible in different areas. And when we talk about uh, rewilding an area or, or moving up the spectrum, we're, we're often talking about it in the context of introducing like herbivores. But are there other processes you would that would constitute rewilding uh, actions in, in your opinion? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the uh, context is on large mammals because they are disproportionately uh, represented amongst keystone species. And because they're the ones that are most likely to have been removed. But really, anything could be rewilding that introduces an important natural process, especially one that generates biodiversity and functionality. I know this sort of overlap of it's not just rewilding, but often when we look at ecosystems and the way they've been altered, there's a tendency to focus disproportionately on the large animals. And I mean, we are guilty of that, I guess, to some degree, too. We have a species list it's called on the website but that species list is in reality a megafauna list even though technically our website is not dedicated to megafauna in articles in the articles we post in the blog post we also cover smaller animals so i think there is a tendency to focus more on these large animals partially because they're more charismatic but they are also ecologically more significant in many ways at least typically they're also much more vulnerable to extinction they Mm -hmm. are and often, I think, to some degree, they're easier to work with. It seems a bit counterintuitive, but it can actually be easier to introduce a large animal than some small ones, because small animals often have a very hard time getting off the ground when you're trying to reintroduce them. Yes. I know that. So, it's ahead. also just easier to know where they are. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know, an advantage. It's just easier to track, easier to fence in, you know, easier to, yeah. 
but in discussing, I guess sort of a sorry. I guess sort of a, a counter argument to that would be that smaller animals are generally quicker to breed and to get up to a large population size. Whereas if you're introducing, say, bison or elk, it's a uh, it's a pretty long term project. Yes, yeah, no, that would certainly be true. Although, uh, as Tristan mentioned, uh, smaller species do sometimes have tr- a bigger problem getting getting started. They also usually have an easier time recolonizing from somewhere else. I think of I think it's stag beetles they're trying to reintroduce in uh, yes, Bordeaux here in Denmark, in this, a very large park, and they've been trying to do this for years now, with mm. relatively little success because this animal is so specialized to such a minute niche that once it sort of gets pulled out of the ecosystem, it's much more difficult to slot it back in than it is with a larger animal. Yeah. Partially because a larger animal, I think, can shape the ecosystem to fit it. But a smaller animal mm-hmm. is much more dependent on the conditions already present being suitable. Exactly. I, I mean, I don't know much about the exact requirements of sta- stag beetles specifically, but I would imagine they're the sort of thing that thrives on a lot of, you know, old trees covering a very large area, you know, it's... It's uh, some, sometimes you have to, you know, you need to bring in the sort of keystone species first to create, to create the, the right conditions before it's even right for, uh, for some of the smaller things too. And what are some of the, sorry, sorry, what are some of the considerations one has to take when you're introducing megafauna? Because surely there are pre-existing conditions that need to be there in that case too. Of course there are. I mean, space is a big one. You know, there's uh, you know, you you can't you can't keep certain animals if you don't have enough room. That, that's uh, you know, type of habitat also does. You know, even if certain herbivores are keystone species, the type of habitat does matter for some of them. Like mm-hmm. if you want, if you thought you wanted to introduce, uh, let's say in a European context, we're talking about cattle versus bison. There are some habitats where one would be better than the other, or water buffalo would be better. The latter presumably need slightly wetter habitats for it to be safe. Exactly. I, as I understand it, there's sort of a spectrum where bison are best suited to more upland or drier habitats, you know, water buffalo to, you know, wet riverine sort of wetland habitats, and cattle to anything in between. Yeah, aurochs seem to be the generalist of the bunch. Even though exactly. both water buffalo and bison are relatively generalist as large mammals go, I believe. Yes, although aurochs also, in general, were larger and more aggressive this is true although i think it varied from place to place they had a very very large distribution yes although they do but in general they do seem to have been the sort of you know lowland temperate uh meadow kind of species whereas you know bison and water buffalo had slightly more extreme preferences but then you also had Mm -hmm. them in northern africa and throughout the uh, mesopotamia and the levant so they clearly had the potential for more extreme habitats Yes, definitely. So what would you say are some, perhaps phrasing it as easy wins is the wrong way to go about saying it, but looking at the European context, what are some obvious moves for rewilding going forward? Mm, Well, I think the big one is protection of existing large natural areas, which is something we seem to be handling okay. Uh, you uh, You know, the large rewilding areas of rewilding Europe are a good example um you know places like northern portugal uh the carpathians especially places where there's a lot of you know land abandonment happening right now is an excellent opportunity for you know natural reclamation 
and uh, also especially for grazing because there's a lot of overlap between uh, places where there's farmland abandonment and places where there's now uh, woody overgrowth and risk of fire. So that's another big one. You find that in European uh, nature areas that uh, people are quite interested in keeping things the same and in, in, in maintaining the kind of landscape there. So whether it be closed woodland or heathland or... Uh... That's a good question. Uh, I admit to not being exactly the public relations guy. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> um, but my understanding is that in many areas, there is some excitement around the idea of uh, bringing nature back to these areas, primarily because it has the potential to create jobs mm-hmm. um, where in places where there aren't any. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's the more conservative people as well. I mean, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Mm-hmm. I but think- I... I- if you consider a, an area like the Scottish Highlands, right? It's, mm. it's ecologically speaking a desolate area, but it's it's often used an example of natural beauty in Europe. Um, does this kind of conflict with the rewilding uh, aims or narrative? No, I think that's certainly true. Is that people often, you know, it's sort of the ultimate example of shifting baseline syndrome. Is that you know these sort of this sort of endless grouse moor habitat is relatively not that old and yet it's the quintessential Scottish landscape now it's what people see as Scotland you know this sort of endless golf course kind of thing but it's even though it's very unnatural and intensively managed to be that way and of course there are people who 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 think that's what it's supposed to be like I mean not that supposed to really means anything but it's uh, the way that it should look like in quotes uh, <laughs> but I, I I think if you ask somebody if it's really natural they might have they might give a more complicated answer I think there's a lot of nuance in this uh, to some degree more than both the grouse lobbies and some of the more extreme wilders acknowledge I think for one thing because I've talked with people on both sides uh, in regards to the Scottish Highlands in particular I think a lot of people will admit that it is unnatural, but still insist that it holds a beauty, which I think has some sort of cultural resonance. That becomes an issue when you have people who acknowledge that this is unnatural. It's not particularly biodiverse, but it's still beautiful. Perhaps the stark beauty, the sort of emptiness of it is even what gives it that beauty for the same reason that people think Iceland is beautiful, despite being essentially Mordor. Um, So I think that definitely complicates it because then you have to it's not just comparing approaches to conservation. You also have to compare completely different value systems and completely different factors that different people are prioritizing. So culture versus nature, aesthetics versus biodiversity. I think an example of the complexity of this that I've seen is in Portugal, actually in the rewilding area in Portugal, which I visited some years ago. And it's definitely a good example of what you mentioned, Reese, that wildlife tourism plays a big role, particularly in rewilding Europe's approach. So they're working with a lot of natives, a lot of locals down there, which has definitely earned them goodwill. But a community isn't homogenous. So on the one hand, you have the locals who are interested in the wildlife tourism, who are doing their best to get it off the ground, who are capitalizing on it. But then at the same time, if you just go a couple houses to the left, you'll see a lot of hostility 
both from people who are just to some degree conservative, who don't really want to see this land turn back to wilderness. But then you also have things like the wolf, which is a classical archetypal problem animal. And I don't know if we might perhaps discuss the role that predators play in all of this, because they're typically something of a spanner in the works. Oftentimes, even if people are willing to concede a lot regarding large herbivores, as soon as you begin talking about even a medium-sized predator, suddenly the conversation kind of grinds to a halt. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a legitimate concern. I mean, you know, and as as predators go, we're not even dealing with anything particularly dangerous in a European context, you know. Wolves, lynx, maybe bears, but only in some very specific large areas. And wolves are very mobile. And a lot of the times we're not even talking about reintroducing them. They just sort of show up. And But, you know, that is in itself problematic. But, you know, at the same time, a lot of the time, it's not a result of any specific sort of encouragement uh, of, I mean, not to say they're discouraged, but wolves just sort of come in on their own. And uh, especially in areas where farming has been severely reduced, uh, it gets easier for them to move about. Uh, But... Yeah, they can certainly generate a lot of controversy with, you know, rewilding projects. Not be, even if there's no plans to reintroduce them specifically, but there's no plans to get rid of them. Mm. I know and, that. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, are there, uh, because it's so controversial, do you have a situation where rewilding programs kind of have to tiptoe around the issue of predators and just focus exclusively on the herbivores? Or is that is that actually more beneficial to just focus on the herbivores? I think if, I, I, I think herbivores actually need, you know, in any European context, herbivores actually need more help than the carnivores do. Oddly enough, you know, it's, harder to because they come with a lot more rules so many of because carnivores can and smaller herbivores can move much more freely than say bison or even red deer and especially things that are technically domestic like horses and and cattle and water buffalo then a lot of our projects necessarily necessarily focus on them because it's actually harder to move them around and there's often infrastructural and legal uh, considerations surrounding their use whereas with you know wolves and roe deer and even wild boar it just sort of happens eventually Mm -hmm. if you're not actively fighting it i suppose a follow-up question to some degree is how important predators even are obviously they have key ecosystem roles but i do believe there is a good deal of evidence pointing to it possibly being overstated so you have the typical example uh, often the way wolves are praised and sort of sold is that they will reduce populations of herbivores and prevent overgrazing overpopulation but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case in a lot of instances it's a slightly more nuanced influence they have on the ecosystem yeah uh this is something i've been looking into a lot and the best I can say is that wolves seem to control some herbivores, specifically deer, uh, not really wild boar. Those are controlled mostly by disease and starvation. Anything the size of a horse or larger 
pretty much not. Yeah, it's, and even some of the evidence surrounding, uh, you know, uh, la the landscape of fear effect, wherein large carnivores affect the movements of large herbivores, has, has, has potentially been somewhat overstated, or is at least very complicated. That is not to say that predators do not serve a very important part in the ecosystem, because I, I do believe they do, uh, but it's, it, it is best to manage expectations in regards to their actual effects on, on herbivore or densities and numbers, especially with something that, like a wolf, which in, in, you know, on the scale of carnivores worldwide, is not that big and has a, a limited ability to take down things like bison, which it does, but only very occasionally. See, this was the thing that I was about to ask about. And I think this is where our angle, the angle our website presents comes in. Because we talk, and you just mentioned how boar are mostly regulated by disease. But is that necessarily the way it would work in the actual ecosystem? Or are we just looking at a situation where those predators that would usually regulate certain species are missing? So you have the situation where only some animals are actually regulated by predators and others, like you say, bison or boar, simply lack the corresponding natural predator. Right. So you're asking whether or not this is sort of a uh, relict effect of, say, the Pleistocene extinctions or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I am referring originally to research done in areas where there are wolves. But... So even in the presence of wolves, wild boar are seemingly not they do not seem they do not seem to represent the main cause of their mortality uh, but it is worth wondering whether that was the case say in prehistoric Europe when they also would have dealt with cave lions hyenas etc uh, probably the best it's hard to find a good modern day equivalent to wonder whether that would be the case uh, as I understand it um, though I don't know for boar specifically, uh, a, a good comparison might be Siberian tigers in uh, in the Amur region, where which do hunt wild boar, but there is research suggesting that the overall effects of tigers on their prey are potentially actually less than that of wolves because they enforce much larger territory sizes and, and don't while not actually having the same food requirements as a as an entire pack of wolves i do and wonder whether a case uh, like the ammo tiger might not be affected by the fact that there's so few animals left that what we're seeing doesn't necessarily represent the natural predation density that we would see that uh, is i would like potentially true yeah I would like to add that uh, having just done the species profile on warthogs, uh, I came across research that suggested that in relatively pristine African areas, uh, warthogs' main cause of mortality is still is also disease. Um, so it's it's very possible if in a case like Africa where you have less um, key carnivores missing, that it might just be the natural case that disease is just a bigger killer in in, in some species. See, I was going to ask if any research on the uh, landscape of fear effect has been done in Africa or other places that still have relatively intact megafaunal communities. Do you I know? don't know much about the landscape of fear effect specifically in Africa, but there has been 
a lot of research on the on top-down regulation by lions and hyenas and wild dogs. And my understanding of that from the literature is that it is very dependent on the environment. In some, in some areas, uh, specifically unproductive, drier areas, um, food is almost always the, the more limiting effect for larger herbivores. Um, but even then, it depends which herbivore species. For example, zebras tend to be more limited by predation than, say, wildebeest, because they are less affected by the quality of food available to them. Because they are not ruminants, they are able to uh, bulk feed, meaning they can eat much, they have to eat much more food, but it, they can eat much less, they can eat food of a much lower quality. Uh, and so because they tend to be less food limited, they can reach the point at which they would be predator limited instead. But in other wetter environments, it's in, uh, where, assuming no other factors like migration, um, many other larger herbivores are, are even to the size of African buffalo may also be may also be predator regulated. Whereas true megafauna like hippos, rhinos, and elephants are never predator regulated in any context. See, that is interesting in the European context because, of course, most of Europe especially the north and the west of Europe, is substantially wetter and more fertile than much of Africa, especially many of the remaining regions with megafauna. So yes. we might perhaps expect that the Atlantic seaboard would have been a region with relatively predator-regulated ecosystem, even if that yes. is just speculation. But yes, although even then it would probably would have been species-dependent to some point. Uh, for example, I think the aforementioned research on warthogs does also apply to productive areas. And... Uh, uh, obviously, we, in you know prehistoric interglacial context, there would also have been true megafauna, which presumably would also not have been predator regulated. Do you know, so oh. in your research on lions, how similar European lions were diet-wise um, to African lions? Um, so, from what I could find, it, it was actually quite a stark difference. Um, cave lions varied immensely in their diet based on the locations in Europe, which is not surprising. I mean, a similar thing applies to African lions, but it appears as though their main diet, at least in Europe, composed of um, musk oxen and reindeer, which is surprisingly small prey items for an, uh, an animal the size of a cave lion. Uh, this goes into the question of whether cave lions also had pack behavior or whether the packs were as big as you see in modern African lions, but uh, they certainly didn't seem to be uh, specialists in particularly large megafauna. Mm. Yet I think most of the diet research from Beringia suggests uh, where there would also have been, you know, reindeer and muskox and actually suggests a, a, a preference for bison and horse. Bison, yeah. It, it, one study uh, I looked at, uh, I don't remember which one, but... Um, suggested that uh, cave lions actually adjusted their diet a disproportionately high amount, depending on which uh, other predators were in the area. So they would oh, sort that's... of adjust their niche depending on the presence or absence of hyenas. And um, I'm not sure about the homotherium because that would be quite rare, but especially hyenas, also wolves. That's mm. uh, certainly a consideration. In, in Beringia, the competitors would have been pretty much just wolves and homotherium. Yeah, so um, 
So there's there's no easy blanket answer for the diet of the cave lion. No, it's like modern lions. You know, there's a lot of variation and probably was also a lot of variation in pack size if they did have it, just like there is mm -hmm. today. Uh, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, the idea of population control in herbivores in the modern European rewilding context. I mean, there's been a lot of pushback about this idea of uh, sort of natural population control, such as uh, winter and famine, or even disease from animal animal rights groups. Um, what do you think a sensible policy in that going forward is? Uh, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, honestly, I do think you know, some level of winter mortality is both, you know, normal and actually beneficial because, I mean, there are supposed to be carcasses on these, you know, on these sites where we want nutrient cycling and also, you know, the the lack of of quality food items is a large part of winter grazing, which uh, encourages herbivores to eat less desirable food items, which is an important element in the opening up of and, and encouraging heterogeneity in the, in the ecosystem. Um, you know, I mean, there's certainly a lot of com complaints about uh, having not having predators in the system, but I think when people talk about predators, they're talking about wolves, which really would not solve the issue. You know, it's a, uh, I mean, Maybe if you're talking about red deer, that could be a factor. But, you know, when you're talking about horses and bison and all of these much larger herbivores, you know, they were maybe regulated, and this isn't known for sure, they were maybe regulated by hyenas and lions in prehistory. Uh, they were certainly regulated by humans in history. Uh, but other than that, their main regulators in the Holocene have been you know, disease and starvation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's really practical to just, you know, ignore that and fight it. I, I guess what, one thing in particular where people get uh, upset is that we're now using uh, feral cattle and feral horses in rewilding projects, which are inherently domesticated animals. Um, do, do you think that should make some sort of difference in the ethical considerations or...? Yes and no. Um, I think we should have clearer legislation on what is a f livestock and what is a purposely rewilded animal, and that some breeds are much better suited to this sort of thing than others. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the idea that something's domesticated is at least partially a subjective distinction. Mm -hmm whether or not it can survive in nature is much more easily delineated. Uh, and I, I think if there are problems with, you know, originally domestic animals being able to thrive in these contexts, it says more about the breed being used than domestic animals in general. You know, it's, it's, it's harder to make a distinction with cattle because they can be anywhere from completely rustic and able to handle anything to, you know, tubes of meat with legs. Uh, whereas horses, you know, even the most derived horses could, can kind of cut it if, you know, if you give them a chance. But uh, 
Yeah, no, there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, arguments to be made surrounding the ethics of using essentially livestock, which have been bred to be not in a wild situation in many, um, in many instances, although many breeds have been bred to, or, or rather not bred uh, to be, you know, more independent. And I think those are generally the ones that are sought out for this sort of project. Mm-hmm. I think I yeah. might add to that, that because in Denmark, for instance, we've just been dealing with the situation at the Maltz laboratory, where there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the use of domesticated animals in a rewilding project. And of course, the typical charge, yes, has been that these are domestic animals. They are animals that shouldn't be subjected to these conditions because they are animals that have been selectively bred for domesticity. And yet the exact breed of horses they're using is Esmo horses, or is it Exmo? I'm not actually sure. Exmo? Um, Exmo yes. horses. At any rate, the breed, it's not a, a rewilded or sort of bred back breed. It's a, the animals are what they've always been. They've been picked over from Britain. But this is an animal that's been living feral, which means more or less unguided in the British moors, a very harsh open habitat, much more harsh than the one the rewilding project is found in. They've been living there for millennia. And for most of that time, there's even been wolves in the region. So I think that's an example of complexity where this is a domestic animal. Um, Mm -hmm. It's been used for purposes. They've periodically been reined in and brought down from the hills, but we're still dealing with an animal that's clearly been subject to a degree of natural selection. So this sort of domestic wild dichotomy isn't necessarily as clear cut as people like to make it. Yes. The exact history of the Exmoor horse is also kind of up in the air, but because it seemingly they were all removed at one point and replaced with new ponies of uncertain origin about, you know, in the mid to late 19th century. But, and their current phenotype is actually the result of, you know, a very concentrated breeding program in the early 20th century. But you, at, at the same time, they do come from that sort of, you know, Dartmoor Welsh uh, uh, st- stock of, you know, native British ponies, which are very well suited to this sort of thing. And they are very well suited to rewilding projects in general. Um, Yeah, no, I think definitely with horses, there's been a lot more natural selection going on, uh, especially with sort of primitive rustic breed, uh, pony kind of breeds. And that should certainly be taken into consideration. Um, It's also true of lots of of different breeds of, of cattle. Though the, you know, the gradient from worst to best there is a little more obvious. Do we know how closely uh, rewilded cattle and horses, how close the niche fits with their wild ancestors? I don't think we have any reason to think that it's any different at all. I mean, it's you know, the, the basic things have, have been encouraged the whole time is, you know, ability to, to eat, you know, food that that exists in your general surrounding and I, I obviously there's no I mean there obviously are anatomical changes but that come with domestication but none of them seem to be so directly affected to the way these animals eat and at mm-hmm. least and in both cases we have wild equivalents with which we can compare I mean it's uh I mean obviously the oryx is dead but you know with we have other species of wild cattle that are that are comparable uh, mm-hmm. and can tell us a lot about what wild behavior for cattle might be like. Uh, ditto for horses. We have Przewalski's horses, which 
what it, regardless of what you may have heard, are <laughs> definitely still a, still wild horses. Uh, this, there was another recent paper that uh, discredited a lot of the idea that the bowtie horses were domestic at all. So the idea that the Przewalski's horses are are feral is likely wrong. So they serve as an excellent example for what we should expect horse Reports behavior to be like. Domesticity have been greatly exaggerated. Yes. Yes. Yes, Daniel oh. Feudel and I have been having a great time on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really need to get him at some point. We had him over for a couple of guest articles. Yes, they were very good. So let's perhaps move a bit away from rewilding and talk more about uh, your research and the late Pleistocene extinctions themselves. Sure. Um, in the grand scheme of things, let, let's just start e- off uh, simple. Do you, what, what do you consider the main cause of the extinctions of the late Pleistocene? Uh, okay, well, I'll dance around this one a bit because I am actually trying to determine. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> my, my belief from the literature as I have seen it, and from the studies that I am basing this research on, uh, is that it, humans were a predominant force in the, not only in, not only modern humans, but hominins in general have <laughs> been a huge driving force behind, uh, behind not only mammal extinctions, but extinctions in general for the, you know, the past few million years, but especially, uh, but especially the past 60 to 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. And does this include in Africa, the, the sort of the origin place of, of humankind? I would say so, yes. Um, obviously, the extinctions have been much less drastic there. Uh, but a part of the reason that, was, that has been theorized for that is because it is the origin of modern humans and hominids in general, and that there was a much greater period of time uh, with which megafauna and other species could adapt to human hominin presence. Uh, though even then there are exceptions. We don't know exactly why um, the giant tortoises uh, went extinct all over the old world, for example. But the pattern matches the movement of species like Homo habilis and Homo erectus quite well. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps makes sense in that sort of context because tortoises are famously uh, delicious and easy to kill. They don't tend to run very fast, no. No, and you, if you can pick them up and throw them in the fire, you're good. The whole point is that they're adapted to every other predator. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's not to say I know for sure that that's what happened, but I find these trends very, very interesting. And I think often they match human geography much more closely than they match any climatic event and that often climatic events don't explain very well how an actual extinction could have occurred are there any sort of um examples you find especially compelling in terms of geographical areas or species case studies or uh let me think I do always really like the turtle example because it matches it so well. Uh, you know, tortoises go, ex- you know, large giant continental tortoises go extinct in Africa first, followed by Southern Eurasia, <laughs> you know, followed by, you know, in Southeast Asia, including islands where we found Homo floresiensis. Uh, 
then the expansion of modern human in, in later is, co coincides with the extinction of large tortoises in you know the Americas and the Myolaniids in Australia and then finally with the movement to islands we see the extinction of tortoises in Madagascar and New Caledonia South Pacific yeah New Caledonia uh, Lord Howe may have been climatic that's unclear uh, same thing with Bermuda um yeah, but it just it matches it very, very well. Almost uh, perfectly. Course. Yeah, there are of course extinction, uh, exceptions to all rules. So for instance, I just researched uh, Socotra for an article I wrote on it. And in researching that, I found that there appear to have been, we have no paleontological evidence from this island whatsoever. But we have, as I discussed in the article, a report from ancient uh, Greek mariners called the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea, which describes in quite substantial detail the fauna supposed fauna of ancient Socotra at the time. And it talks about several species of large terrestrial tortoises. And this is an island that has been inhabited by pre-human hominids. So I believe it's Homo habilis for about a million years, or at least several hundred thousand years. And yet there still appear to have been some tortoises by the time ancients were writing about them. So that does appear to be some sort of exception. But of course, even there, we don't know if there were even more tortoises in the past, even bigger ones, which since vanished. Yeah. Or when the tortoises so, colonized. That's true. You know, it, it, I, I don't think there was, I don't know if there was a continuous period between Habilis and Sapiens, but, you know, it doesn't take long for tortoises to just sort of show up if there's no one there. Uh, but yeah, obviously there's going to there's be exceptions in, in any case. There's also certainly many cases where tortoises disappeared due to climatic causes. Uh, you know, like the aforementioned Bermuda, Lord Howe, probably. Europe originally. Uh, Probably, yeah, I think the Maldives, the Canary Islands, I think. Uh, yeah, and there's lots. But in many cases, it seems, for, you know, I mean, obviously, and we know for sure, tortoise extinctions were tied to, to humans in the, in the more recent cases of you know, the, the Galapagos and the Indian Ocean. But, you know, that's very cut and dry. And it's, I don't think it's even controversial to say that that's what happened in the South Pacific or Madagascar. But, you know, I, I think that trend can be pulled out a lot longer. Another group which I so believe shows it... a trend surprisingly similar to the tortoises is actually saber-tooths. Yes, that, that also matches human, the movement of human beings quite well. They go extinct in Africa first, then southern Eurasia, uh, but then, and then last Eurasia and the Americas, where they survive right till the end. You know, there's theories about, as well about competition with, uh, you know, more derived panthera but i i don't think it quite works as well it seems odd because many of the largest and most uh, hyper predatory panthera species were in north america which is where they survived the longest yeah it's one of the places yeah that there's also really some argument that they might have been present in south america but that's very debatable I mean, yes, there definitely and, was some panthera. um we had uh, jaguars yeah well obviously jaguars yes but not lions well maybe lions. we we don't maybe lions I mean, an interesting addition to this conversation is, uh, is the North American, the American lion, and the, um, the species of Smilodon, the Smilodon fatalis, uh, seems to have had quite different niches and actually be competitive, ex uh, competitively exclusive. You never find them; you very rarely find them in the same place. Yeah, um, they've had different habitat preferences and prey preferences. That's one of the reasons and the I idea, don't really find it convincing. Yeah, and the idea behind this would be that. Um, 
the American lion seems to have been a much more adept runner and pursuit predator compared to uh, Fatalis, which was quite definitely an ambush predator. So you could have um, them differentiate based on habitat. Yeah, it almost seems comparable to the uh, difference between lions and tigers. Right. You know, where, where one being sort of an open plains pack hunter and the other being a closed habitat ambush hunter. Obviously, there was probably there was probably major differences in the exact way they hunted, but you know there are some parallels to be drawn there, perhaps. Interestingly, mm-hmm. I do believe that Homotherium was actually relatively similar to lions in the way they lived. They were pursuit predators. They were social. They were diurnal. Um, That's true. Yeah. So I don't know if you've done any research on that side when you were reading about uh, cape lions. The interaction. Uh, no, I did not come across uh, homotherium especially much, mostly because it doesn't show up in studies because in Europe it's so rare, so it's difficult to get a uh, much of a perception of its ecology there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't show up very often. It seems to have been much less common. Like it, it, there's, I think, one fossil from Venezuela, and that's the entire record we have from South America, and it's right. from the it's from the middle Pleistocene, I think. So it's yeah. It seems to have been a naturally relatively uh, rare cat. Although I yes. will note that its disappearance from most of Europe seems to coincide again relatively well with the arrival of Neanderthals. Yeah. So, and then from then onwards, it's only found in Northern Europe, which may in fact be repeated colonization events from the far north. So, yeah. Might also be it was just more of a steppe species and it just had to leave periodically. And then because it had such low densities, it was. You know, it was so. Show up. Am I right in saying species like uh, Homo habilis, Homo neanderthalis, Thaliensis or Thaliensis? Thaliensis. Thaliensis. Yeah. Well, in any case, uh, am I right in concluding that their impact has been quite specific on certain groups, whereas Homo sapien has been a much wider uh, array of animals that it's affected. I would say that yes. Although, l- like I said, I am still assessing whether or not. Humans were the primary cause. Uh, now, obviously, I'm following research that did find that, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, my understanding is that while it is possible to attribute a few archaic extinctions to other species of humans, uh, modern humans sort of take the cake, so to speak. And the reasons behind that are that humans have a the ability to construct weapons that can be used from a distance uh the invention of the throwing spear is often uh is often given you know uh is often given as an explanation uh fire is also a big one obviously other species of hominin did use fire but humans are the only modern humans are the only ones known to have specifically used it for hunting Mm -hmm. um as far as i know um, yeah, um, another big one is just, yeah, tool use or new ways to use tools and high, for, for whatever reason, higher population densities seem to have been major factors, if that is the major factor. And are there any cases where the timeline does not seem to fit with uh, the arrival of a hominid? Oh, there's a few strange the cases. There's a few strange cases where... Uh, we have evidence of humans showing up significantly before the extinctions happened, but that mm, there are some caveats to that. Uh, often, 
it's extremely localized, meaning it might represent a failed colonization, or often it's there's no evidence of them expanding far beyond that point, meaning parts of a, an area might have been might, might have been colonized without ever without ever being without successful without successful colonization of the rest of the landmass until much until much later, which understandably would have you know much less of an effect on the megafauna of communities because you know mm -hmm. they could recolonize from those areas whenever they would always have a source. Um, it's it's really only if you are going to attribute the megafauna extinctions to human activity, I don't think it makes sense to do so until there's evidence for humans across the whole landmass. Mm -hmm. And that happens once that happens, it happens pretty quickly. I think it's when you consider how risky a proposal early colonization of new areas was, it's not too difficult to imagine that you could have multiple abortive attempts. When you consider that we're talking about very small groups of people moving into completely unknown areas, full of dangerous animals at a period when, again, populations would have been very low across the board. In many cases, you really only need one bad day to set an entire tribe on a downward trend. So I know that we have articles like um, the controversial datings in Madagascar, which claim that there's evidence of human settlement going back much further than the conventional date of 3,000 years. But even if that is true, as you say, Reese, that would mean that we have almost no archaeological evidence from the period in between. So clearly there can't have been very many people, even if a few did arrive much earlier. Yeah, it doesn't or, mean they stayed. Yeah, that's another thing. So perhaps as we begin to reach the end, it would be a good idea to ask you to return to your PhD project and your research and ask how exactly does this differ from so much other research we've seen on the subject? Because you do find quite a lot of articles on the Pleistocene extinctions but often they have a rather specific regional focus. Does your yeah, and, take a different approach? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think that's part of the problem is that so much of this research happens on such a local scale that I, I don't really think it's constructive to look at any of the Pleistocene extinctions without looking at the phenomena as a whole, because it was a phenomena. Phenomenon. Yes, sorry, phenomenon. singular phenomenon. Yes, Uh English is my first language. I'm still not good at it. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, sorry. Uh, you know, you, I think you do have to look at it as a single phenomenon. Otherwise, you're just ignoring data, essentially. But and so I, what I'm doing is is a global analysis, which takes into to account every. The, uh, basically the entire proportion of extinction of large mammal extinctions at or equal to 10 kilo, kilograms for every region in that entire time period. And I think that this sort of large scale analysis is much more helpful regardless of the result because it because it, it, it gives you the, the trend and the correlation for all possible for all possible factors, I think. And just to clarify, are you only looking at global extinctions or are you also looking at uh, local extinctions? Uh, I'm looking at local extinctions to a point, only if they were from an entire continent. Okay. Like an example might be Sega disappeared from North America. That counts as an extinction. I was just really that counts as an extinction in North America. Okay. 
Ditto but not rain contractions within within a continent. No. I suppose okay. that's room for further analyses in the future. Yes, that's probably what a lot of my subsequent chapters are going to involve, yeah. uh, or at least part of it. And also, you know, more detailed analysis on human movement and and uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask. It, it's in a lot of cases, it's probably quite hard to pin down exactly when humans arrived in a place. In such cases, how do you make the evaluation? Like, uh, that's sort of going to—I don't know—that's something I have to make a call on. That's something that's going to come into effect more with subsequent chapters. For this first one, it's more categorical. Just mm-hmm. uh, what what kind of humans were present here? Were was it only ever modern humans? Was it just you know? Uh, what, what did humans evolve here? Were, were there older kinds of hominins? present here, that sort of thing. And what hominins are you including in the study, other than humans? Anything that left Africa. Um, So Neanderthals, Tennisovans, I I guess technically this one they just discovered, the Dragon Man, but I'm probably going to be lumping that with Denisovans because it was found in the same area. So for that purpose, it it matters the same. Uh, Homo erectus also left Africa and colonized much of uh, southern Southern Eurasia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, uh, lingered in Java until the late Pleistocene, didn't it? Yes. Okay. And of course, those species are also being considered as megafauna that were hunted to extinction, or uh, at least disappeared during that period. Well, I, I suppose you can certainly. It's certainly a good. It's certainly quite intuitive that one species of hominid drives another to extinction. Sure, I don't think that's even controversial at all. I mean, you can talk mm-hmm. about the way in which it happened, but, you know, hybridization mm-hmm. versus, you know, eradication or whatever, but it's... I think when you look at humans' history of act of interacting with each other, it doesn't seem too unlikely to believe that if we should come across a smaller, somewhat less efficient species, we perhaps wouldn't exactly be kumbaya with them. No, that's not really our style, is it? No. Well, no, I, don't, you... I don't think you need to do it on the species level. We see that plenty with civilizations as it is. Yeah, exactly. Right, a more advanced civilization displacing a younger one, a, a less developed one. Well, as we hear a protest, I think we've actually just passed the one hour mark. Are there any further points you would like to hit, Sam? No, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we covered so far. What about you, Reese? Anything you haven't had the chance to say? No, I, I'm, I'm fine, I think. Okay, well then I think we will thank you so much for coming on for this interview. Yes, it was, it was great. Thank you. It was our pleasure, pleasure having you. Lisa.